Now, to get into class today, you know, last week, Mark Lanier made a comment, and I finally, you know, as a pastor, as a teacher, I'm always looking to crit- be very critical of other people's teaching. That's what teachers do. We're always looking for the mistake they make. We're, oh, okay, there it is. Mark Lanier is very difficult to come about. I finally found it last week. I was sure, and so I called him out on it, and then he called out to me that I was wrong. You know, he, he mentioned that, that John, the beloved disciple, was Jesus' cousin, and I know that he meant John the Baptist, who was already beheaded and dead at that point. Therefore, all the cousins of Jesus couldn't possibly be still living. In fairness to Brent, this is actually one of those trivia questions that you can stump most believers with, because most don't know this, especially those who are guilty of being pastors. Guilty. I will say, but I won't name who, that Dale Hearn sent me an email as well saying, hey, I loved this in class and I loved that in class, but you know me, I'm always going to tell you if you flubbed, you said John was Jesus' cousin at the foot of the cross and that's John the Baptist and he'd been dead and he wasn't at the foot of the cross. So you might want to fix it on the internet. Then I get Brent's email saying much the same thing. And and then I get an email from Janet and the internet team saying, don't worry, we took care of it. We took it off the internet. Before I have a chance to respond and say, I was right. They are wrong. Can I have the Elmo, please? Here is the passage in John. We'll get to the Elmo in a moment. I I might have broken the Elmo just to keep this from happening. Uh Uh-huh. Nice try. Not with our expert crew in the booth. Okay. This is the passage out of John. Standing by the cross of Jesus... Were his mother, here, we're going to make notes here, mom, and mom's name is, class, Mary. Mary. His mother's sister, so that would be mom's sister, and mom's sister is called an ant. Right? Who else is there? Mary, the wife of Clopas. Then we got another Mary, and she's the wife of Clopas. And her name is Mary. And then we have Mary Magdalene, who for this moment we'll leave off to the side. Now, is John the only one to write about the crucifixion? (laughs) As Hebrew means no. (laughs) Let's look at what Mark has to say. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene. Well, we left her off to the side. Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joses. That's Mary, the wife of Clopas. He references her as having the sons, James and Joseph. And then who is the other one? The mom's sister. Oh, her name was Salome. So now we know mom's sister is Aunt Salome. Got it? Now, why don't we go ahead and just flip over and look at how way Matthew notes it. Now we've got Matthew 27. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him. Among whom were Mary Magdalene. We don't need to worry about her. Mary, the mother of James and Josie. That's Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Ouch. That's Aunt Salome. 
mother of the sons of Zebedee. And if she's the aunt, the sons, including John, are cousins. I'm leaving the law. We say case closed. Put it back in the internet. Ladies and Jesus entrusted his mother to his cousin who was a follower. So you actually have to research and do cross-referencing? Is that what being a lawyer is all about? Hey, oh, how love I the law. It is my meditation night and day. Well, I've, I've, I have bowed down to the foot of, of Mark Lanier. And no, said, no, no, I'm, no, I'm no, wrong. no. I only know it because I studied it. <laughs> like, like he said, case closed. We will never bring this up again, except at your trivia parties, and you have the upper hand. Congratulations. Thank you, Mark Lanier. So this morning is the first Sunday in Advent, and I'm thankful that y'all are here to celebrate This is 2018, and today is December the 2nd, and New Year's is January the what? January the 1st. Oh, you're all talking about the Roman calendar. It was Julius Caesar who got so frustrated with the calendar system that he decided we needed 12 months and put this basically into sync, including the idea of a leap year every fourth year to pick up a day so that we could mark when that earth is in the same position that it's in around the sun, ultimately as we understand it now, each cycle. Now the church has changed the calendar a little bit and and civilization has changed the calendar a little bit, but we still use a Western or Roman calendar. It's also called the Gregorian calendar because of some changes that were made uh, in, in Rome and up until really Gregory, a lot of Western civilization measured the years by when Rome had been founded, AUC. But with Gregory, the change was made to when Jesus, uh, they thought, they they, uh, messed it up. He assigned it the work to like a monk named Dennis the Shorter. And um, Dionysius Exiger or something. This means Dennis the Shorter. And uh, assigned the work to Dennis. And Dennis didn't quite nail when Jesus was born, but he got pretty close. And so our calendar 2018 is supposed to be based upon that. The year of our Lord, Anno Domini, uh, A.D. But that's our Roman calendar. It's not the only calendar that's out there. If you want to celebrate New Year's by our Roman calendar, it's January the 1st. But if you want to celebrate Rosh Hashanah or New Year by a Jewish calendar, it falls sometime generally September to October. Because the Jewish calendar is different than our Western calendar, the Roman calendar. Heavens, you want the, the, the Chinese calendar. It's different than the Jewish calendar and the Western calendar. By the way, this is the year of the dog. Next Chinese New Year is the year of the pig. I started that year early on Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> but it's a different calendar. I pigged out like it was Chinese New Year. In addition to those calendars, there's a liturgical calendar or a church calendar. Now, we're at a Baptist church, and most Baptist churches don't strictly adhere to the church calendar. You don't typically find Advent wreaths with Advent candles in your general Baptist church. Hit up a Lutheran church, you're going to see these things like crazy. Some of the higher churches in terms of liturgical service will pay attention to the church calendar a bit more. But the church calendar includes in Advent, Advent is part of the cycle of Christmas. By the way, how many days of Christmas are there in the church calendar? On the 12th day of Christmas, that's it, 12 days of Christmas. 
But Advent are the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas. And that's the Advent part of the church calendar. Now, what does Advent mean? Well, our English word Advent references those four Sundays before Christmas time. Our English word Advent comes from a Latin word. The Latin word? Advent, with us at the end. But the Latins would pronounce the V as a W, so it'd be Adventus. But that's our English word. It just comes from the Latin word. The Latin word means an arrival or the approach of someone or something. And so Advent, those four Sundays are the four Sundays in the church calendar where we celebrate or recognize or honor in anticipation the coming, the arrival, the approach of Jesus. Adventus is in our Greek Vulgate. That's the Greek translation of the Bible that was officially done by Jerome back in like, wasn't it the early 400s or something like that? Maybe late 300s? I don't know, somewhere in that era. But Jerome does that and translates it into the common language of the western part of Rome, which was Latin. Common language is also known as vulgar language. And that's why the Latin translation of the Bible is called the Vulgate. It was vulgar Latin. It was everyday Latin for everyday people. So when Jerome translates the Bible into Latin, he uses Adventus to translate a Greek word. The Greek word that's found in our Greek New Testament is the word parousia. Parousia is a word that means the coming, can mean arrival, can mean approach. It's got a wide range of semantic meaning. Uh, the presence. And so if we understand this season of Advent, we can embrace something that has helped infuse the church in faith for thousands of years. This part of the church calendar has been around well over a thousand years. We've got references to it 1,500 years ago. And it's a way that the church has maintained an ability to focus through different aspects of the life of Christ. To keep a well-balanced diet. I would love, I, I make no bones about it. If I had a choice, I think I could live off pizza and diet Dr. Pepper. <laughs> pizza is a marvelous food for breakfast. Eat it cold. Pizza is a marvelous food for lunch. Buy it by the slice. By the time dinner rolls around, get the whole large pizza. <laughs> I could do that every day, every week, every month, every year. And I would not have lived to be 58 to be standing up teaching to you now. <laughs> I'm dead next week, you're going to know probably, I know it, is that a pizza? <laughs> um, but, but we teach our children, you don't live on pizza and, and diet Dr. Pepper, or in one of my daughter's cases, pizza and Skittles. That is not our macaroni and cheese and Skittles, she could have done that. That is not what you, you still have to eat some vegetables. You still need some calcium. You, you need a balanced diet, right? It's no less true for the focus of the church and the Christian life. We need a balanced diet. We need to focus on different aspects of the life of Christ. Jesus was not, I'm sorry if this lets you down, Jesus was not born on December 25th. 
probably born in the springtime. Not December 25th, but we celebrate it because the church has cycles where the church tries to make sure that we celebrate all of these different aspects of the life of Christ. It's part of a well-balanced diet, spiritually. So when we celebrate Advent, we're celebrating an important season, but Advent, the arrival the approach, the coming, the presence of Jesus, the church is recognized in three different ways. We need to look forward to the arrival of Jesus in these three different ways. First, we all celebrate this time of year, the arrival of Jesus in the flesh, which is what he did in Bethlehem. The nativity, the incarnation, the coming of the Messiah. That we celebrate as one aspect of the arrival of Jesus. But if we focus merely on that in this Advent season, we'd be a one-legged stool when we need to be a three-legged stool. Because we should not only look forward to the arrival of Jesus in the flesh at Bethlehem during this season. But we should look forward to the arrival of Jesus in our heart. Each day. This morning when I awoke. Before I prepared the PowerPoint that I'm giving you right now. My prayer was, Lord... Invade my heart today. Set up your kingdom in my heart. Purge my heart of anything that would want to be above you today. Dwell richly in my heart. So that when I share this morning, I'm not sharing my heart, I'm sharing the heart of Jesus I want people to understand and hear that this is never about the speaker. Even if he knows who the cousins of Jesus are. (laughs) This is about Jesus Christ arriving in our hearts and in our lives. So we celebrate, amen to the Lord for that. So we celebrate Jesus in the flesh in Bethlehem, but we celebrate Jesus in our heart each day. And then thirdly, we celebrate Jesus arriving, coming again, His presence at the end of time in glory. Because Jesus will come again. And when we're celebrating Advent, we don't simply look back to Bethlehem. We look at our hearts today and we look forward to the promise of what's coming. Because that's our God, the one who was and is and is to come. Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. And the prophecies that we light the candle for on the first Advent Sunday are not only prophecies about Bethlehem, they're prophecies about God pouring His Spirit out on all human flesh, Joel. As Jesus prayed in John 17, then explained in John 16 and 15, that we would know that Jesus dwells within us and that He is in the Father and that we are in them. Because He is sent to us. One called alongside to help us, the Holy Spirit. So, we celebrate the prophecies about Bethlehem, but we celebrate the prophecies about our lives today as believers. And we celebrate the prophecies that there will come again the Son of Man, who will return triumphant. For a final deliverance of his people and his kingdom. With a new heaven and a new earth. And the old will pass away. And we can be confident of that. The Jesus who left at Pentecost or before Pentecost. 
told his disciples, you stay here as you, and the angels, they said, what are you gaping at? It's up in the heaven. He left that way, but he'll come back the same way. And he will. And all of that is what we celebrate during the blessed Advent season. So we've got the Advent wreath. We've got the burning candle, this first candle for prophecies. That's where it lays it out. You with me? Okay, so here's what I want to do. I want to go through some Jesus devotionals that are going into the next book off of the Advent season. By the way, the printer assures me that we will have the books here to give you the Sunday before we, we depart for Christmas. And so the, the paperbacks are available now, but y'all are getting the hardbacks. And so we've got the hardback books coming for the Torah devotional, okay? But here's your first devotional. So all of that's just background. You just had Advent 101 catechism class, okay? My question to you, why are we here? I just spent a crazy week with a bunch of people in New York. And there were all sorts of people. And I was asking myself each day, I wonder why this person thinks they're here. I wonder why this person thinks they're here. And I wonder what difference that makes in how they live. Because I do believe that some people think life is just running around on a treadmill till you're dead. And you get up in the morning and you want a cushy treadmill. You want really good sneakers. So you work real hard to surround yourself with things that you think will make life easy or fun or better. But I watch these folks and... and, and and they just seem to be on the treadmill just running. And their day is a calendar. And they get through the calendar and hope to have enough time to either eat some good food or drink something that will make them feel better. Or watch TV and get lost. That is not the view that a Christian has. That is not the promise of Advent. The One of the many lessons of Advent is we're not running on a treadmill. We have a purpose in this life. We're running to a destination. We have a purpose in this life in the hands of an almighty God. The passage that I've chosen for this is from John 1, verses 6 and 7. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Now, don't get hung up on all. Remember our Greek word all like our Hebrew word all. Our Greek word all, pas, just means everyone that I'm talking about. Like when I say, y'all are great. I don't mean all of you. <laughs> Some of you are superbly great. You know, I, when, 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 when uh, the gospel writers said all of Jerusalem came out to be baptized by John, they don't mean <laughs> Pilate, hey, let me out there, I want to be baptized by John. Okay? It just means... A bunch of y'all. Okay? So that y'all, a bunch of y'all might believe through him. Now, this is a word about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is being born into the world to bear witness about Jesus. You might say, well, of course, he had a purpose. He was, he was pretty special. He's talked about it in Isaiah 40, verse 3. Well, it doesn't just mean he's special. His parents had a purpose. No madre or padre means no bambino. You don't have parents. You don't have a kid. Their parents were pretty important. 
it's not just the process of procreation that's important. But those people who influenced them. The life that they lived, the walk that they had, that they even, that the, the parents even met. All sorts of things influenced. I had a textbook. I, mean, I was, I was a Hebrew Greek major, but I was a, a economics minor because I thought I might have to get a real job. <laughs> and then I realized, what kind of job can an economist have? But, um, one of the textbooks in one of my advanced economics class was called Tanstoffel. Those are the initials to a very important economic concept. Quote, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Tanstoffel. And the premise of the book was the smallest little things can affect things a world away. The price of eggs in China can ultimately, maybe just on an almost infinitesimal amount, affect the availability of soybeans in Iowa. I mean, if the price of eggs are cheap enough, Chinese don't have to buy as many soybeans, they can buy more eggs. They don't buy as many soybeans when they import 60% of them from the U.S. changes the Demand on soybeans. It's just, it's all linked up. Okay, our purpose is that way. You may not think, well, I'm not a person of purpose. Yes, you are. See, John came because he was a direct link to Jesus. He's preparing the way for Jesus. He's testifying about Jesus. That's what he did. But he links all the way back up through people to Isaiah back behind him. Isaiah gives the prophecy. Isaiah 40, verse 3, part of what Brent read this morning. And, and it wasn't just Isaiah gave the prophecy. It was Israel had scribes and learned people who recorded the prophecies, who kept the prophecies being written. They couldn't just stash it away on the cloud. They had to handwrite it. They couldn't even hit the copy machine. They couldn't fax it. They couldn't scan it. And for them to write it, someone had to find the turkey quill or the reed to use to shape, to dip in the inkwell. And if they're going to shape it, they're going to need a tool to shape it. And if they're going to need a tool to shape it, someone's got to make the tool. And if the tool's made out of metal, someone's got to mine the metal. There are so many different ways that chain is linked up. So many different people who had purpose. And God, the master designer builder, brings it all together, coagulates it all in a way that fulfills His promise. But everyone has a purpose. And that same link of the chain links up from Jesus to you and me. And we're not the end of it. So if you feel that your life is futile, if you feel you're running on a wheel, if you're wondering, what am I supposed to be doing here? If you're young and you're wondering, what am I going to do with my life? If you're middle-aged and you're wondering, what am I going to do? My kids just left the house and I've got an empty desk. If you're older and you're wondering... Gee, do I have any purpose anymore? My health is failing. Everything seems to do okay without me. No, if you are here, you have a purpose. You will know you no longer have a purpose when God takes you. But He doesn't leave you here because He forgot. And you can't measure what God's going to do with you. You don't know when you're the stone that goes into the still pond. You don't know what ripples will go out. So I want you to know in this Advent season 
That the coming of Jesus is special. The coming of Jesus is important. It is a promise. But it is a promise that dwells alongside the promise that Jesus is in your heart. And if Jesus is in your heart and you're called by God, you have a purpose in this life. Look for it. Do it. Pray for it. Seek it. Be excited about it. And so that's a lesson to go. I am going to look to Jesus in my life each day. And then I'm going to try and show Jesus to others. And somewhere in the process of that, I'm going to trust that he's using me as he would like. This is the next devotional vignette. So, have you ever thought, you know, I'm living for the Lord. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing for God. And and I I think I'm doing it fairly right. I mean, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect, save the Lord himself. But, but, you know, I feel like I'm I'm giving it my best. and, And within who I am, I'm doing the best I can. Yet things seem to be turning to dirt. And it just doesn't seem right that they should turn to dirt for me when I'm righteously trying to live before the Lord and seem to be blossoming so well for the heathen who don't give a rip about God. I think what I'm talking about is the frustrations of a well-lived life. Where you think, okay, I'm I'm doing the best I can, but it just isn't working out the way it's supposed to. Here's the passage. It's from Luke 1, 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiyah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child. Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. They were past the childbearing age. This was a fait accompli. Done deal. That chapter should be over. Well, what do you do? You think this isn't right. I'm living righteously before God. And I don't seem to reap the rewards that others who are unrighteous seem to reap. Well, I want you to take a step back from this for a moment. And I want you to think about something. We can look at the world with Or without God. So if you look at the world without God for a moment. And you consider what that world is. You might think, how am I going to get what I want? How am I going to get what I need? There's no God. So you live your life trying to get it yourself. I don't know who you deal with in your life. I deal with a lot of people in my life who don't believe in the Lord. And it's interesting to deal with them because I sit here and I watch them and they realize, oh, they've got friends and, and uh, they've got family and the friends and the family help them out, maybe. But ultimately, every one of them looks at this world as something where they have to get it for themselves. They want that house, they've got to get that house by themselves. They want that car, they've got to get that car. They want happiness, they've got to get happiness. There's no God. And they have this mindset, if there's something out there I want, I've got to get it myself. I can't rely on someone else just to give it to me. And so they're driven with this focus of, I want it. I got to get it. But the Christian should not be focused that way. 
The Christian should be focused instead on Jesus' teaching. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. Oh, it doesn't mean you get everything you want. But it means you're like Paul who wrote to the Philippians from a jail cell and said, I've learned the secret to being content. I've learned the secret. I've walked with plenty and I've walked with nothing. And the secret to being content is walking in joy before the Lord for the Lord's kingdom. And so as believers, we look at the world not, I've got to go out and get everything I want because it's the only way it's going to come to me. But instead, we look at the world with, I need to figure out how I'm going to live in service to my king. I got a buddy. He's, uh, did I bring my cell phone today? Uh-oh. That's a bad sign. I got a buddy who sent me a text right before church. And he said, uh, lawyer in Florida. And he said, Mark, do you ever wonder if we're using our talents right before God by what we're doing in the court system, just chasing the bad guys, or should we be doing something more? And I haven't answered it yet because I haven't had time to, to give it a thoughtful answer. But my friend's asking the right question because the question is one of focus. Someone's calling my cell phone. Brent Johnson is calling my cell phone to see if it rings because I have it on my watch. Thank you, Brent. Siri, take a note. Send Brent Johnson an email and reminding him who the... (laughs) Send a memo to Brent Johnson and remind him who the cousins of Jesus are. Thank you. We... We can... We can... I hope he gets it. Um, My buddy is right. That's the issue. Are we focused in on seeking first, first priority, the kingdom of God? I want the kingdom of God for you. I want the kingdom of God to invade your heart and your mind. And your family. And your future. And your past. Heavens, I need the kingdom of God to invade my past. And your present. I want you to seek first His kingdom. I want to seek first His kingdom. I want His righteousness. And I'm going to trust that everything else comes with it. That I need and want for His kingdom. Yeah, but what about the extra stuff? We want to seek first his kingdom. And all that extra stuff. Winning football season for Texas Tech. Way down the list, obviously. So when you think about the frustrations of a life well lived, lived well, I want to urge you, To remember that you can wait for the yet. Because Zechariah and Elizabeth were past childbearing age and they'd walk blamelessly before the Lord. But there was a reason in God's kingdom that they had been childless to that point. Elizabeth was going to give birth to John the Baptist, the herald of the King of Kings. And he had to come at the right time. John the Baptist, by the way, was a cousin of Jesus. Here are the (laughs) lessons to go on this. I'm going to seek first the Lord's kingdom and his righteousness. And I'm just going to trust God for the yet. All right, next vignette. Amazing things happen when you serve the Lord. Especially when people are praying. Amazing things happen. Let's continue the Luke story. Verses 8 through 11. Now while he, Zechariah, was serving his duty before God, when his division was on duty, the the priests were divided up into divisions and they would serve two weeks, uh, not consecutive, but two one-week periods each year. 
when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now you may be thinking, gee, they rolled the dice to see who did what? Yes, they did in a sense. But they viewed that as a way of taking human making out of the decision and letting God do the decision. I do not necessarily advocate that for your life, but that's what they were doing. He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Now, the temple has courts. The holiest of holies was entered only by the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. But the court immediately adjacent to that, the holy court, was one that only the priest could enter. And they would enter it for specific purposes. One of those purposes was to burn incense, which was done in the morning and was done in the evening. So... Zechariah is chosen to go in and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of people are praying outside at the hour of incense. Incense, in part, was to be the prayers of the people rising up before the presence of God. So it was a visible smoke, smellable incense, awareness, a physical awareness of a prayer seeking the ear of God. And there appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Well, now that's a shocker. He'd been doing this for a good bit of his life, and I don't think he'd had that happen before. I just want to pause and grab a couple of points for home out of this. Number one, serve the Lord. And number two, pray. And have others pray for you. I get emails from you guys all the time. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. Those mean the world to me because I know God's hearing the prayers. And Zachariah is in there and he's serving the Lord. He's just doing his thing. And the people are praying. And an angel of the Lord appears, a messenger of God. An angel, angelos in the Greek, is a messenger. That's someone that God has sent with a message. That's a pretty big deal. Serve and pray. And then as you do this, do not fear. Know that God's going to take action in your life. You serve God, you pray, have others pray for you, and then don't worry, don't fear. God's going to take action. The passage continues. Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth's going to bear you a son, and you'll call his name John. First of all, God's sent the angel with an incredible message. God has sent the angel to tell Zechariah, Hey, your prayers have been answered. You and Elizabeth are going to have a child. It's going to be a boy. Name him John. When the angel comes to give this message, Zechariah, bless his heart, is scared to death. First of all, no one's supposed to be in there who's not a priest. Second of all, they drew lots to decide who's going to be there. Third of all, nobody should just magically appear, poof. Unless it's like Las Vegas at a magic show. That's not what this was. This was real life. And a good, righteous, holy man is scared to death. And this is written in a way to tell us, no, don't fear God's methods. God could have done it another way. God chose to send an angel, chose for him to appear right there. He didn't just walk up to the tent like uh, the three angels did with Abraham when they told him that Sarah was going to have a son. He's just, bam! Angel right there. Next to the incense table. 
And Zechariah is scared to death. But we should never fear God's methods. I got to tell you myself, I tend to fear God's methods sometimes. He hadn't sent the angel I've seen, poof, all of a sudden right there. But he's taken some pretty circuitous routes to get me somewhere when I would much rather just walk straight down what I see. But looking back, I see the reasons. Maybe not all of them, but I certainly see some. So we don't need to fear God's methods. See, the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah. may not mean much to you unless you speak Hebrew. But if you speak Hebrew, you know what his name meant. To say Zechariah is to say something. It's to say God remembers and takes action. Zakar is, is the Hebrew word and it's translated usually remember. But it's not remember in the sense of the word that we use in English. The English word regrettably doesn't catch the full semantic range. It's not so much G, now I'm thinking of it when before I'd forgotten it. Like I remember my wife's birthday is coming up in the next year or so. It's not that. Remember means to take action. It's, I know my wife's birthday is, she'd be mad if I said her birthday date, but it's the same as my sister's, my older sister's, December 12th. So, (laughs) I know whatever day it is, my wife's birthday is that, and I'm going to go buy her a gift. Why am I buying her a gift? Because I'm remembering her birthday. See, in that sense of, of I'm going to take action because, you know, when God remembers Noah and causes the waters to recede, it wasn't, ah, gee, I forgot that guy was down there. It was, no, look, I haven't lost sight of the fact you're there and now I'm going to take action. Okay, that's the Hebrew word. Zechariah, that's the start of Zechariah's name. The Yah part is just Yahweh, God. His name means God's going to take action. He remembers. You of all people should know because it's your name. Don't be afraid. Don't be surprised. God's heard your prayer. He's going to take action. Now here's the problem. Fear is often followed by disbelief. When we're scared, it seems to walk hand in hand with a lack of faith. Look at the rest of this passage, this vignette. Zechariah said to the angel, well, how can I be sure? I'm an old man. My wife's advanced in years. I mean, come on, dummy. God sent a specific angel who poof appears right there by the incense altar, calls you by name, calls your wife by name, Tells you what's going to happen and you're sitting there saying, how can I be sure? (laughs) Come on. So the angel says, I'm Gabriel. Daniel 8 and 9 tells you Gabriel is God's messenger to help people understand stuff. Like big time archangel type guy. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you good news. Unsaid here, but clearly implied is, and you want a sign? How am I going to know? I mean, Jiminy, Christmas, what more does it take? So he says, behold, you want a sign? Here's a real good one for you. You're going to be silent. Not going to be able to talk. And if you read through the passage, you'll see that he's also not going to be able to hear. That's kind of implied, but not specified in the Greek. You're going 
to lose the ability to hear and to speak. You will be deaf mute until the day these things take place because you didn't believe my word. And I read all those Sherlock Holmes stories. Sitting there thinking, Zachariah, really? How will I know this? Well, God sent the archangel Gabriel to tell you that's a pretty good way of thinking you might be knowing it's going to be true. But I can't be too harsh with him because God has done some miraculous things in my life. And I still question, God, how can I know for sure you're going to take care of this? So our final lessons to go, I need to learn to walk in faith, not fear. And that includes trusting God's methods in my life. So I want to pray a prayer of blessing over you for this Advent season. And I want to thank you for being here this morning. Father, thank you so much for my friends, those listening. I do pray that you will bless them, Father, that your Holy Spirit will fall upon them, that you will invade their hearts and their minds you will capture their their affection that they will find in you the fulfillment of their hopes and their dreams that they will find in you the purpose in life that evades us absent your presence Father during this Advent season may we not only recognize the beauty and love of your coming in Bethlehem. But Father, may we experience the beauty and love of your coming in our hearts and the joy knowing your love that you will return again. Through the Lord Jesus, we pray, amen.